turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 10. Same question in verse 26, again using different terms. 
he did get interrupted many times in the course of his ministry, sometimes by crowds who interrupted him, sometimes by individuals who interrupted him. And Jesus never got mad just because he was interrupted. Read through all the Gospels. It never says he got mad that somebody interrupted him, and lots of times he got interrupted. Jesus, in fact, recognized that interruptions sometimes provided opportunities to do God's will and serve people in unexpected ways. Now, what are some other reasons why we might get mad? Well, sometimes we get mad because we're uncomfortable. Hungry, thirsty, tired, too hot, too cold, in pain. And if we get mad because we're uncomfortable, that just means we value comfort. Right? Now, Jesus experienced plenty of discomfort in his life. He lived in an age without modern medicine and without central heating or air conditioning, without insulation in houses. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He got tired. He was hot. He was cold. He knows how all that feels, but read through the whole Gospels. Jesus never gets mad just because he's uncomfortable. It's not why he gets mad. In fact, he was very patient in dealing with discomfort. Well, sometimes we get mad because other people don't treat us right. Maybe somebody lied to us or lied about us or left us out or didn't follow through on their word, and we can easily go overboard in this way, but it is legitimate to feel indignant when we ourselves have been wronged because that simply means we value our own dignity as God's image bearers, and God has made each one of us in his image. So that's not a totally uh, wrong reason to feel indignant. But here's the question. If we get mad when other people mistreat do we also get mad when we see other people around us being hurt and mistreated? Do we get mad when people, those who should be helping people end up hurting people? If you look at all the times that Jesus gets mad in the Gospels, it's almost always a response to this. When vulnerable people are being hurt or people in power are being hard-hearted. So in chapter 1 of Mark, if you look at all the times in Mark where Jesus expresses strong emotion, chapter 1 says Jesus was moved with pity, or in some translations, moved with indignation at the plight of a leper, someone who had leprosy, who is excluded and shut out from the rest of the society. Or in chapter 3, Jesus was in a synagogue. There was a man with a withered hand, and Jesus wanted to heal him, but the Pharisees were just waiting for Jesus to heal him so they could accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus, it says, chapter 3, verse 5 says, Jesus looked around at the Pharisees with I mean, just 
think of a few reasons. First of all, if you think that children are naturally pure and innocent, you have never raised them. <laughs> or it was so long ago that you have forgotten what it was like. Second, no one in Jesus' time associated children with the idea of purity and innocence. The idea that children are naturally pure and innocent originated in the 18th century from writers like Rousseau, uh, who has been very influential, but sadly and ironically, he sent all five of his children to an orphanage. He never actually raised them himself. Third, the Bible never says that children are born pure and innocent, and then they become corrupted by their environment as they grow up. No, it says that people of all ages are made in the image of God and are corrupted by sin and inclined towards self-centeredness, whether we're young or old. So, children are not naturally pure and innocent. We need to throw that idea out the window. Second idea, some people say, well, children naturally display humility and trust. And Jesus wants us to humbly trust him. That's what it means to enter God's kingdom like a child. Now, this idea is closer to the truth because Jesus does want us to come to him with humility and trust. But Jesus never says that children always or naturally or mostly display humility and trust. Sometimes they do, but sometimes children are fearful rather than trusting, sometimes for good reasons. Sometimes children are willful rather than humble. So I don't think Jesus is pointing to an attitude that's particularly prevalent in children that is not prevalent in adults. No, Jesus is pointing to the objective status of a child. Children, by their very nature, are weak, dependent, and vulnerable. Right? Notice that these children didn't bring themselves to Jesus. Somebody else brought them. And the fact that Jesus took them in his arms meant this wasn't just a bunch of 11 and 12-year-olds. It wasn't just older children. There were, In fact, in Luke's account of this, Luke used the word infants, that even infants were being brought to Jesus. Right? The fact that Jesus could lift them up meant they were probably some of them, very small children. And, you know, infants and young children in any society can't survive independently. They will, if you just leave them alone and don't let anyone help them or provide for them, they won't survive. Right? And uh, they can't provide for themselves. Every meal that a child eats has been grown, cooked, prepared by somebody else. Every toy that a young child plays with has been given to them as a gift, not earned. The only thing that a child, especially an infant, can do is to receive. And in Jesus' society, children were seen as the most insignificant ones. So most religious teachers only spent time talking with other adult men, rarely with women, almost never with children. That was sort of the, the priority that people assumed in Jesus' day. The assumption was, if you're building a kingdom, don't waste your time taking care of little kids. That was, Jesus, that was the assumption of Jesus' disciples. But Jesus said, no, that's all wrong. Come to me. And he took the children in his arms and blessed them because he said the kingdom of God is for people who are like children, who are weak and helpless and vulnerable, and who all they can do is receive. And who realize that they can't earn their way into the kingdom of God. They can only be received by God's mercy and his grace. You see, the kingdom of God is for those who have nothing. For those who acknowledge that we have nothing to bring, nothing to boast.
obey them ever since he was old enough to understand them. And when he said in verse 20, I've kept all these commands since my youth, Jesus didn't contradict him. So he had zeal, he had knowledge, he had obedience, he had wealth, and many people would have understood his wealth to be a visible sign of God's favor on his life. After all, in Deuteronomy 28, God had promised that if his, when his people entered the promised land, if they were obedient, they would be blessed. They would be prosperous. And so, it's not the only thing the Old Testament says on that topic, but many people would have thought, well, if he's prosperous, that probably means God approves of him. And that seems like what he thought about himself, too. I mean, think about it this way. If you're building a business, if you're starting a nonprofit, if, or if you're leading a church for that matter, and somebody like this comes along, well-respected, well-trained, knowledgeable, eager, young, financially well-off, lots of potential, that person rises to the top of almost anybody's list. Think, oh, I could be a good employee, I could be a good board member, lots of potential for the future. I want that person on my team. So Jesus responds in a very surprising way. Verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. You might say, why would Jesus say that? Well, it's not because Jesus hated him and wanted to drive him away. No, verse 21 says Jesus looked at him and loved him. That's the only time that Mark says that Jesus loved a particular individual. Jesus had an affection for this man. You know, he, he cared about this man. He wasn't trying to reject him and drive him away. But I think for this particular man, Jesus knew that the only way he could be freed from his idolatrous attachment to his possessions was to literally give them all away. It's like Jesus said in chapter 9, where he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Sometimes the only way to be freed from an idolatrous and unhealthy attachment is to cut it off completely. And that's what Jesus called this man to do. Now, this is the only time that Jesus told someone to give away 100% of their possessions right then and there. It's not a universal command that Jesus issues to every one of his followers. <coughs> However, if you look at whenever Jesus calls someone to follow him, there's always something that they have to let go of and leave behind. Because becoming a follower of Jesus, becoming loyal to Jesus, means everything else in your life has to be reframed around him. You see, in essence, Jesus told this man who had everything that he had to become like a child who had nothing. And then he could enter into the kingdom of God. That's basically what he's saying. Right? Children with nothing are received. And this man comes with everything. And Jesus says, no, all you need is nothing. Give away his wealth. He had to give up his claims to moral goodness. You know, I think that's why Jesus challenged his good teacher for Mark. So it was not normal in those days to go up to a, a rabbi and call him good teacher. There are no other 
come eternal life. One person put it this way, for disciples of Jesus, what is gained will far outweigh whatever is lost. See, every time Jesus issues a difficult command, it's accompanied by an even more bold promise. So we see children with nothing who entered in. We see a man who wanted to hold on to all his stuff. But finally, look at the last few verses, verse 32 to 34, and we see really why this is the case. Why we can come into the kingdom of God with nothing. You see, Jesus Christ was far more prominent than this man who came to him with everything in this world. Right? The rich man came
project that he had to do. I think it was his final project. And he said, for my final project, I had to design a house. And he said, you know, I've been learning so much about the idea of God's grace and the idea that we're received into God's family just by his grace and his goodness. And I, I thought, how could I express the idea of grace in this house that I had to, this project, house sort of designed for a house that I had to put together. And he said, you know, one thing I did was every doorway in the house, when you look at the doorway, it looks narrow, plain, and unassuming from the outside. From the outside of the house or the doors that go into different rooms. But when you walk through that door, it opens up into a spacious and beautiful room. He said, I wanted to design it that way because that's a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. From the outside, it can seem like it did to this rich man. It can seem narrow and plain and unassuming, and the cost of following Jesus seems great. But when you enter in, you see that it's far more spacious and beautiful than you could ever imagine. come to Jesus with faith like a child and enter into his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is a challenging word for us because we can so easily get attached to our own possessions, our own reputation,
then for all is ready. Let's say this together. We come not because we ought, but because we may. Not because we are righteous, but because we are repentant. Not because we are strong, but because we are weak. Not because we are whole, but because we are broken. The Lord Jesus, in the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take 